This month is a special month, not just because it's fall, though that is my favorite time of year, and I know it is for, for many of you as well when it starts getting cooler out, and not because of all the great college football to be played this month, though there's quite a bit of that, and not because of Halloween at the end of the month. This is a special month because at the end of this month, we remember an event that is very special for you and for me as Christians. On October 31st, nearly 500 years ago, in 1517, a theology professor named Martin Luther posted a writing on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And and in this writing, in this paper, he questioned and he challenged the teachings and the practices of the church. Now, what possessed him to do this? Well, the more Luther studied the Word of God, the more he began to see how far the church had drifted from the core doctrines of the Christian faith. So he made every effort he could to try and reform the church from within by reintroducing these key teachings from Scripture and to show where the church had erred. And what Luther was hoping would happen was he wasn't expecting this this reformation, this Protestant reformation that occurred. What he was hoping was going to happen within the church was a careful consideration of what the Scriptures say in a good discussion on how to change things, but unfortunately, what he found was that the church leaders had little interest in what the scriptures had to say at that time and no interest at all in changing any of the teachings and the practices in the church. So instead of opening the door for change, the church closed the door on Luther. So Luther, along with Many other so-called protesters broke from the church. And what resulted from that was the start of Protestantism and the, the spread of Protestant congregations all across Europe. And, and, and folks, we as believers and we as a church here are a product, a result, an outcome of this great Reformation that took place. The reason why we are here this morning with our Bibles in hand, in our own language, and in a translation we can understand. And the reason why I encourage you to read and study your Bible week in, week out, on your own, and the reason why we look to what God's Word says, and the reason why we pattern our lives after the teachings in this book, that all comes as a result of this great Reformation. So we have Martin Luther to thank, and other reformers to thank, but most importantly, we have God to thank because He is the sovereign God of all. He is the God of providence who worked in and through these men to bring about this great reform. So we have Him to thank for this key event in human history. And for more on Martin Luther, the man behind the the Reformation, you can get online. I've preached sermons in the past 
uh, an event that changed the world, remembering the Reformation. Those are a couple of the, the titles which centered more on Luther's life and contributions. But today, and for the next five weeks, we're taking a break from our series in Acts. We're going to be back in Acts in November. But for the next five weeks, we're going to do something a bit different. Instead of focusing in on these key dates and key people from the Reformation, what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on the key doctrines of the Reformation, the key biblical teachings that were reintroduced by Luther and the other Reformers. During the Reformation, there were five fundamental beliefs that the reformers believed to be absolutely essential and non-negotiable. And for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about each of these core doctrines in this series that I've entitled The Five Alones. We're going to be talking about the five alones of Christianity. And this morning, we're going to start by looking at sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. Scripture alone. This is one of the core doctrines, the central teachings of the Reformers and of the Bible and of the Christian faith, that Scripture is our sole authority. It is our supreme authority as Christians. How many of y'all are familiar with the stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table? Anybody? Anybody remember that? Yeah. Many of you, there have been many Stories told about King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. Many movies that have been made in the 60s. There was a Disney movie called Sword in the Stone. You remember that? In the 70s, there was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. In the 80s, there was a movie called Excalibur. In the 90s, there was a movie called First Night where Sean Connery played King Arthur and, and uh, Richard Gere was Lancelot. I'm sure Lancelot looked like Richard Gere in the original stories. And in the 2000s, there was a movie called King Arthur. So there have been lots of movies, lots of stories about King Arthur and Lancelot of Camelot and Lady Guinevere and the Knights of the Round Table. And many of you who are familiar with the story of King Arthur, you know that though there are numerous versions of this fictional story and confusion about which fictional story is the original at the center of the story is a sword remember what the name of the sword is it's not just any sword there are often swords in in stories about knights and kings but this sword is unique it's called excalibur and in this story excalibur is in a stone and it is said whoever can pull excalibur from the stone will what will be what King, very good, that's right. The sword Excalibur in the story of King Arthur represents authority. It represents the divine right to rule. In the story, we're told that though many claim the right to rule, only the one who removes Excalibur will in fact rule. So without the sword, the people are without a supreme authority. They are without a king. Though there are many who claim to be king, they are not recognized as king because they are without Excalibur. In a few stories I read, it was said this. It said, if the king is without the sword, the land is without a king. Now here's why I tell this story. You're probably wondering where I'm going with this. Some of you may know. There are many churches today who are claiming authority. They're claiming to be the voice for this generation. 
and they are trying their best to minister, but they're doing it without the sword. They're doing it without God's sword of authority, the sword of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, which is the Word of God. And because they're without the sword, they're without a supreme authority. And they're also without a king, because in this sword, we learn who the King of Kings is and about His great person and work that He accomplished for us in salvation. Folks, without God's word, we are not left with much. We have nothing of of real worth, nothing of substance, nothing of value for ourselves or value to offer anyone else. God speaks to us through his word. And God speaks through us as Christians and as a church as we preach and teach from his word. God's word is what changes hearts and lives. Some of you will say, well, I thought the Spirit of God does that. He does through His Word. You know, the Spirit of God has written this book, right? For us to use. And His Word, believers, is why you have been changed if you're a follower of Christ. That's why you're here this morning. His Word is what changes the hardest of hearts, the hardest of sinners, and His Word is what redirects the most wayward of believers. God guides us through His Word. He counsels us through His Word. He encourages us through His Word. He rebukes us through His Word. He grows us through His Word. We have nothing truly of worth to offer anybody, nothing truly of worth in our own lives, nothing truly of worth spiritually apart from the word of God. Scripture is clear. Though we are saved according to the plan of God and through the finished work of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit use the word of God to save us, to guide us, and to grow us in godliness. So this morning, if I hadn't made it clear already, I'm going to talk about this word. All right, we're going to talk about what makes this word, this book, the Bible, so incredibly special. Why did the reformers teach that this book is to be our supreme authority? Well, we find our answers in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. 2 Timothy 3. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17, but mainly at verses 16 through 17. Paul is writing here to his disciple Timothy, and this is one of the last letters Paul wrote to his faithful disciple, and maybe to anyone. And Timothy is, at this time, he is pastoring a church in Ephesus. And we find in this book that Paul leaves Timothy with some incredible counsel. In chapter 4, he charges Timothy in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus to preach the word. And the reason why is because, one, people are prone to wander, to wander off, away from the truth, and off into myths. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. He says, preach the word because the time is coming and has now come, right? And it had come in Paul's time. When people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
That's one reason Paul calls for Timothy to preach the word because people are prone to wander away from the truth and off into myths and accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. But another reason Paul calls for Timothy to preach the word is because of what he says about the word in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at it with me, verses 16 and 17. Paul says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In this passage of scripture, we learn three important reasons why the Bible is to be our supreme authority. One is because of the nature of scripture. Two is because of the usefulness of scripture. And third is because of the sufficiency of scripture. And I've given you all these points. Those are all the points in your outline, by the way. At the beginning, but what I want to do is I want to look at each one of these points in greater detail, and I also want to discuss what issue prompted the reformers in the 1500s to address these issues and why it's important for us today. Okay, so we're going to do some Bible study. We're going to talk about theology. We're going to talk about Christian history, and we're going to make application. That's a pretty complete sermon, right? Hopefully, it will be. All right. First, let's talk about the nature of scripture when we say scripture what are we talking about we're talking about this right here right talking about the bible and when we say bible notice it's singular it's one book but as many of you know it's composed of 66 smaller books Though it is one book, it's divided up into Old and New Testament with 39 books in the Old Testament originally written in Hebrew and 27 books of the New Testament originally written in Greek. And these together form one book, the Bible. And we as evangelicals, we as believers believe, should believe that there is one author. We believe that God was behind the writings and the compilings of these books. But we also know that this book has many authors so it's got one divine author but it's got many human authors so it's a divine book and it's also a human book second timothy three sixteen. in that verse paul says all scripture is breathed out by god notice paul says all scripture now here it's fair to say paul's referring to the old testament because the new testament had not yet been completed but we also learn here Though Paul was probably thinking about the Old Testament when he said all of Scripture, the God who spoke through Paul meant all Scripture, old and new. Later in Paul's writings and in the writings of Peter, they'll acknowledge that the New Testament books that were being written were authored by God as well, which is why myself and others, when we look at 2 Timothy 3, we apply that to the whole Bible. It means all of Scripture. So notice here, Paul says... All of Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, some of your translations may say something a little bit different, like inspired by God, but I like the ESV translation here, breathed out by God, because the Greek word that's used there is the word theonoustos, which means it came straight from, straight out of the mouth of, in the breath of 
God himself. Therefore, get this, scripture carries with it the weight of God himself. It came from his mouth, therefore it carries with it his authority. Let me give you an illustration that may help you with this. Let's say you have a parent who are not going to be home when their kids get home from school, and so they leave them a note that says, do not go outside and play, do not play video games, do not do anything else until you finish your homework. Many of you remember receiving those letters, right, as a kid, good, yeah. And let's say that parent comes home, and their kid's outside playing, and their homework's not done. And they go out and they say, what are you doing? You're disobeying me. And what if that kid said, no, I'm not. I'm just disobeying that letter in there. What might happen? Well, one, they might get spanked, right? They're being a smart aleck. But if they, if they truly mean that, the, the parent might have to explain to them, no, by, by disobeying that letter, you're disobeying me. Because on that letter are my words to you. You see where I'm going with this? In the same way, to disbelieve and disobey the Bible is to disbelieve and disobey God because we believe the Bible is God-breathed. We believe that all of Scripture comes out of the mouth of God. We also believe in human authorship as well. Though the Bible came from the mouth of God, it also came from the minds and the mouths of Men, and you definitely see this when you do a thorough study of the scriptures, especially if you have any kind of knowledge in the languages, in the Greek and Hebrew language. When you look at, uh, like, the Gospel of, of Luke and Acts, Greek scholars say that's some of the most excellent Greek in the New Testament. Grammatically, Luke had a large vocabulary. You know why? Luke was a smart guy, all right? When you look at John's Gospel in the epistles, He has a very limited vocabulary. It's good Greek, it's easy Greek, but it's very easy to read. That's why many seminary students, they start translating in in Greek 1 John and the Gospel of John because it's the easiest Greek. When you get to 2 Peter, Peter grammatically is not where Luke is, okay? It's a tougher read in that way. Not any less true, but Peter was a fisherman. So you see their education levels, you see their personalities come through. Yet, though that's the case, though the, the, the words of Scripture came from the minds and the mouths and the personalities of these different men, they also came from the mind and the mouth of God. Listen to the way Peter says it in 2 Peter 1.21. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Peter here gives us a better idea of what this mysterious process of inspiration looks like here. He explains that men spoke using their own personalities, using their own intelligence, but they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God uses human beings to write his words and works through their personalities, works through their own intelligence, and while doing that, he preserves his word. He keeps his word from error because God's the ultimate author behind it, right? This is what we mean when we say the Bible is inerrant. Have you ever heard that word used? The the inerrancy of Scripture? It's without error. You know why? Because God is without error. He does everything perfectly. He is without error in any and every way. Therefore, the words from him are without error. 
error. And we go even further than that to say that the Bible is infallible. And that's a big word as well, but it means something very simple. It means the Bible is incapable of having any errors because it is from God who is incapable of making mistakes. So not only does God not make mistakes, he is incapable of doing so. Therefore, his word is inerrant and infallible. It is beyond the realm of possibility for God to make a mistake. Therefore, it is beyond the realm of possibility for his word to have mistakes. Now, when we talk about the Bible being without error, we are talking about in the original autographs the original manuscripts, the original Greek and Hebrew, and in our Bibles, in your Bibles, insofar as they are consistent with the original. And there are a lot of different translations out there. Some are much, much better than others. The, 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 the King James, the New King James, the ESV, the NASB, the Holman Christian Standard, the NIV, those are very, very close to the original. There, there are some minor differences in the translations, but nothing that changes any of the overall core teachings of the faith. So we say that the Bible is without error in the original manuscripts and in our Bibles insofar as they, are, they, they reflect the original manuscripts, okay? That's why at times when I'm preaching, like I did just a moment ago, I'll refer to a Greek word in the text or a Hebrew word. I go back to the Greek New Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament, which are copies from earlier manuscripts that are copies from the original. And the manuscripts go back to the 4th and 5th century that we have today. There are some fragments from the 2nd century that uh, were uh, around when uh, there were eyewitnesses still around. There was a guy by the name of Tertullian that talked about in the 200s that many of the uh, churches still had the original letters that were written by the eyewitnesses, okay? So, so it's well documented. We, we have this, uh, this process and, and we know about these books in existence, okay? And I'm sorry if I'm getting too technical here, but that's what we mean. When we talk about the nature of Scripture, we're talking about 66 books of the Bible written by various authors over an extended period of time with one divine author, God himself. So that's the nature of Scripture. Now let's talk about the usefulness of Scripture. And let's look again at 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Once again, Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So notice the usefulness of Scripture. First, we're told that all of Scripture is profitable for teaching. Now, this is an obvious one, right? One of the main things, the primary things we do with the Bible, other than read it, is we teach it. We teach it here at this church, here on Sunday mornings. We teach it in our equipping classes and FEU classes and small groups and Bible studies. And we're encouraging you now, right, to take it into the homes. Discipleship begins in the home. So that Discipleship involves teaching. So you're to be teaching in the homes using the word of God. So it's profitable for teaching. Also, the Bible is profitable for rebuking. That's not a popular one, but we've got to deal with it. It's in here, right? Because we are prone to wonder, at times we need to be rebuked. 
We need to be redirected back to the, to the right path, the path that God has paid for us. God's word shows us the error of our ways and calls for us not to swerve to the right or to the left, but to turn our feet away from evil, Proverbs 4.27 says. And the Bible shows us how to do that. First, by showing us our sinfulness and our need of salvation. Then, by showing us how to be saved through turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. And then the scriptures tell us how to live in light of what Christ has done for us in saving us. Paul also says, scripture is useful for correction. At times we need to be corrected in our thinking. And those in the world definitely need it, right? This is what Martin Luther, by the way, was hoping would happen when he posted his 95 thesis to the, to the door of the castle church in, in Germany. He was hoping that those in the church would place themselves under the authority of Scripture and would see where they had erred doctrinally and, and change their thinking and their teachings and their practices. And believers, we're to do the exact same thing. Do you know the hardest person to put under the correction of God's word is? Just include your name. It's true, isn't it? It's much, much easier for us to speak truth to others. It's ourselves we don't like to preach to, am I right? We also learn that the Bible is profitable. It's useful for training in righteousness. The ultimate goal in life, the reason God has placed you here, the reason he has created you and put you here, and the reason he has redeemed you is so that you would be conformed to the image of his son. And listen to me, this does not happen apart from his word. It doesn't. The word of God is useful, it's profitable. All of scripture is for your training in Righteousness. That's why we're serious about being biblical here and opening up God's word. I don't want to give you my soapbox. Who wants to hear the soapbox of a 36-year-old? I know I don't. I want to give you God's soapbox to try my best to stand under the authority of his word and study so that I can confidently say, here's what I believe God is saying here in this text of scripture after study. The word of God is, is useful. All of it, profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. We also learn from Paul in 2 Timothy 3, the sufficiency of Scripture. That's the third point, the sufficiency of Scripture. Now let me explain what this means. What we mean when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture is that Scripture contains all the words of God that we need to be made right with God and to live rightly for him it's not all we have to help us but it's definitely all we need let's go back second timothy 3 and let's look at verse 15 this time look at the verse prior in verse 15 paul says from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in christ jesus verse 16 all scripture is breathed out by god and is profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness verse 17 that the man of god may be complete equipped for every 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 good work Paul says here that the sacred writings, the scriptures are able to make us wise 
for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And they're given by God so that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. We learn here that the scriptures are all we need for salvation and all we need to be complete spiritually. Scripture is all we need to be who God has called us to be and to be equipped to live the life that he's called us to live. The Bible is sufficient. All that God requires, all that he expects is found in here. Everything that God expects you to know and to do is found in here, in his word. And everything he expects for us to be is found in here, in his word. And everything he has called for us not to be and not to do is also revealed in his word. Word. Now, first, you need the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God has got to do a work in your heart and life. He's got to change you from the inside out. He's got to apply the finished work of Christ to your life. But we learn from Scripture that after the Spirit of God does this great work in us, after He, through His Word, shows us our sinfulness and our need of Christ and shows us who Jesus is and how He accomplished our salvation and He applies that work to us, After that, the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, then shows us everything God expects us to be and to do and not to be and do, and He works in us so that we can work these things out and grow in godliness. That's what the sufficiency of Scripture means. It also means, get this, this is a big one, no other revelation is on par with the Scriptures. None. The scriptures stand above everything else and judges everything. Whatever the teaching may be, no matter who teaches it, that teaching is to be measured by the word of God. The word of God is our supreme authority. And whatever fails to match up or goes counter to God's word is to be rejected. If I were to ever say anything that goes counter to the word of God, you are to reject that. You are to have an encounter with me, right? I am under this. This is my authority. This is your authority. This is our supreme authority in life. This is what Martin Luther was wanting to see happen in 1517. He saw many of the teachings and the practices of the churches being in conflict with the scriptures. And so he wanted the beliefs and teachings of the leaders in the church to be brought back under the authority of scripture and measured by it, but they refused, which is why he and other reformers embraced this doctrine that said scripture alone is our ultimate authority. It's our highest authority. It's our only perfect authority. It's our supreme authority. And the reason why is because it is divine authority. It's the word of God. It's God breathed. It comes straight out of the mouth of God. And I know what some of y'all are thinking here this morning. Graham, we know this. We know this. We, we believe this. What's the use in going over this today? Though they were struggling with this doctrine 1,500 years ago, we're far removed from that situation today. So why focus on it? Well, the answer is really, really simple. The reason we need to give more attention to this doctrine today is because the message of Luther, this message found in Scripture, is lost on many in our world today. And many in the church. It's true. This generation 
as it has been with every generation since the Reformation and before, there has always been this temptation to step out from under the authority of Scripture. And a few reasons why is because, one, some don't believe in the nature of Scripture. Number two, because people aren't benefiting from the usefulness of Scripture. And three, because a lot of people don't really believe that the Bible is sufficient for their life. That's the reason why. There are many churches today here and elsewhere who do not believe that the Bible is God-breathed. Many in the church here in East Texas. Surprise, surprise. I've had encounters with people who believe it's a well-written book with good principles that we need to learn but not divine. Therefore, it carries no more weight than any other book and its doctrines are no more significant. There are many... Others who, though they believe in the nature of Scripture, they're not benefiting from its teachings. There are some churches today who are failing to teach and preach the Bible and do not call for their people to study their Bibles and be students of the Bible. May that never be said of us, Fellowship Bible Church. Pray we always be serious about being biblical. I pray this be taking place in the homes, that you're serious about it, and that you're devoting yourselves to the Word of God. Because, folks, according to Paul, how are we made complete? How are we equipped for every good work? Through being taught, rebuked, corrected, trained by the Word of God. I want you to get this. I want you to let this sink in. Jot this down. Listen. You will only be as strong spiritually as you are knowledgeable scripturally. You follow me? You will only be as strong spiritually as you are knowledgeable biblically. You know who understood this, Paul? That's why in Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians, he just lays out who we are in Christ. He just just teaches doctrine. And then, chapters 4 through 6, he goes on to give 37 commands. But at first, he lays out the groundwork for the way in which we are to think about who we are in Jesus Because Paul knows right thinking leads to right living. That's why theology is necessary. He does that in Romans as well. You will only be as strong spiritually as you are knowledgeable biblically. How many of y'all like hot tea? Anybody like hot tea in here? Any hot tea fans? I'm, I'm more of a coffee drinker, but at times I like hot tea. But I like my hot tea strong. And those of y'all that know about hot tea, you know, to make hot tea strong, you have to let the tea bag steep in hot water for a while. And the darker the water gets, the stronger the drink. In the same way, the strength of our faith, get this, is directly contingent on the amount of time we allow ourselves to be steeped in the Word of God. Folks, we will never be where we need to be as believers and as a church until we begin to value what's taught in here. Never. You've got to value God's word. You've got to value what's taught in here, taught in our equipping classes, FU classes, small groups. Value that time you have at home spent in God's word. Value that time you have with your families, teaching them from the word of God. People have asked me in the past, how, how do we get people passionate about serving the Lord? We don't have enough people passionate about it. The answer is found right here. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The way people get passionate about the Lord, the way people get equipped for every good work is through being taught and rebuked and corrected and trained by the Word of God. Do you value God's Word? 
Do you believe God's word to be your supreme authority? If not, can I suggest something to you? It may be because you don't view God as your supreme authority. That may be the reason why you don't value scripture like you should. If one of my girls tells the other one what to do, the other one will normally respond with, you're not the boss of me. I've heard that before, right? Many treat God in that way. When they hear his word taught, they, they say, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. I can live the way I want to live. I make my own way. I do my, I do my own thing. You're not the boss of me. Well, here's the thing. Though my girls are correct in saying that one sister does not have authority over the other, the same does not apply to God. God is our authority. He is our supreme authority. Whether you like it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not is irrelevant. God is our authority, and we're one day going to find that out because we're told that he has appointed one, the one whom he raised, his son, the Lord Jesus, who is coming again to judge And in that day, those who live and are found apart from and opposed to God will have to face God and his wrath in the life to come. God stands in authority over us. And he has given his word to guide us and direct us back into a right relationship with him so that we we can be who we were created to be, so that we can do what we are created to do, which is live for God and for his glory. And he tells us in his word that the only way back to him is through his son. Jesus came down to us. The word, the word came down and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us in the flesh. And he lived for us and he died for us and he was raised for us so that we through faith in him could be forgiven of sin and made right with God and have life in his name. So if you're here this morning, And up to this point in your life, you've lived your life apart from and opposed to God. You have lived as your own authority. I urge you this morning, release the grip that you have on the reins of your life and give your life up and over to the divine authority, to the supreme authority, the Lord God. Make Jesus your Lord today so that you can start this new life with him, a life of purpose, a life of joy under the guidance and direction of his word. Would you pray with me?